You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we confess our great need of you even this morning. And we ask that you would, uh, you would turn our hearts and fix our minds, our eyes, our affections on Jesus. That as we open your word today, Lord God, as you teach us by your Holy Spirit, that we would, we would see and hear what you have for us that we would hear the words of Jesus Himself and they would sink, through, sink in and, and go deep into the, the wandering hearts that we so often have, that we might be encouraged, that we might be transformed. That You might do what is necessary in us as, as You shape us and form us and conform us into the likeness of Jesus. We pray that this morning. We thank You for the the worship that you've already received. We thank you for the celebration of the gospel that we've already shared in. And we pray that it would continue, that our worship would continue this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. You can have a seat. Uh, good morning, River City. It's a joy to be with you, to be gathered like this. Um, I was talking to someone as they were coming in and there was a time earlier this week when the sun was out, and uh, that's not meant to be a joke. It was just out for like five minutes, and, and in that moment, like Tuesday, I walked outside, and I felt like, man, I missed the sun, right? Not that, I mean, it's been around. It's been here all winter, but it's not the same as when like the warmth actually warms your face, Right? And there's something, there's something to that. There's a reminder of God's kindness, of His nearness, of His presence, of like, I haven't forgotten you. And I get some of that same sense, and I hope we get some of that same sense, whether it's a gloomy day, or uh, we have water in our basement, or we don't feel good, or whatever the case might be when we're able to gather together like this as God's people, that there's a similar sense of God's doing something in us and through us and hasn't forgotten us. So that's my prayer for myself and for us this morning as we gather together. It's been a couple weeks. Um, we've been in some other parts of God's Word. We're going to get back into Luke's Gospel this morning, and we're going to work our way through um, the end of chapter 15. Not all of that today, but through the end of chapter 15 over the next couple of weeks. And then uh, starting in June, um, we'll shift to looking at the Psalms this summer. But if you want to turn your Bibles, Luke chapter 14 is where we'll be. If you need a Bible, some folks are coming around and can get one to you. Luke 14. Now to bring you up to speed, uh, three weeks ago, Marty uh, preached from the first part of Luke 14, where Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. And even though we paused for Easter and last week we talked about multiplication and church planting, our passage today is the same dinner party that Marty referenced three weeks ago. So just to bring you into context a little bit. So it's from that part uh, of Luke 14 that we're going to pick up this story, this account. 
where Jesus tells a pair of parables, a couple of stories to illustrate some important things. So we're going to pick up in verse 7 of Luke chapter 14, and we're going to read all the way through to the end of verse uh, 24. So Luke 14, starting in verse 7 through verse 24, it'll be on the screens as well so you can follow along. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Luke 14, starting in verse 7. Now he, this is Jesus, told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, excuse me, wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by, by him. And he who invited you both will come to you and say, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Verse 12. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the Servant came and reported these things to his master, and the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and there is still, still there is room. Excuse me. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is God's word for us this morning. We're, we're biting off two parables, a large chunk, but I think it all makes sense together. So we're just going to try to tackle it all together. Here, Jesus is a guest at a dinner party. And he is pressing hard on both the hosts and all the other guests at this party. He's that guy who was invited. He's questioning their intentions, their hearts. He's even questioning their manners. He's pressing in on the primary problem that is keeping them at odds with Jesus. He is pressing on their pride, their sense of self, or better, their inflated sense of self. 
And this is what I want us to kind of keep in mind today as we read, as we seek to understand what Jesus is saying here, and as the Spirit of God is at work in us to apply God's Word to our hearts and lives. That pride is the, the, one of the primary things that keeps us from participating fully in God's kingdom. But Jesus welcomes in and calls us to welcome others. Jesus is the one who breaks down that or breaks through that pride and welcomes in. And if we're followers of his, we're called to welcome in others as well. So while they're enjoying this meal, these guests of this party, in a spiritual sense, in a kingdom sense, they are failing to feast. As I mentioned, there are two dinner party parables in this text. And so two, par- two parables. I have three kind of takeaways from these two parables. And here's how we're going to break it down this morning. The first is that humility leads to honor. The second is that hospitality leads to blessing. And the third, if we miss these two core concepts of the kingdom, humility and hospitality will end with our third takeaway and where I think these dinner guests and their host find their place at the end of this story, failing to feast. They're there, but they're not really there in a spiritual true sense. So let's look at the first parable. First, verses 7 through 11, this parable of a wedding feast and how humility is actually the pathway to honor. Now, in the, in the section just before that Marty preached a couple of weeks ago, Jesus essentially silences those who have terribly misunderstood the Sabbath and its design. They don't understand how the kingdom of God works. And Jesus has, in a sense, shut them down with the healing of this man. Wouldn't you go and save a, your oxen or your donkey, and how will you not extend that kindness to this man? Jesus says, and effectively, they have nothing to say to him. That's where we leave off. So Jesus then continues and tells them a parable. And it says, Luke tells us, Jesus tells them this parable when he noticed how they chose seats. He, he, he recognizes and looks at the way that they acted as they came into the dinner party, specifically where they chose to sit. So at a dinner party like this, there would have been likely a, a large U-shaped table. Depending on the size of the house, there might be multiple tables shaped like this, where the host would sit at the top, or even the guest of honor sometimes would take the main seat, and the host would sit right to one side or the other. And then the pecking order, if you will, would travel down the length of the table. So the lowest seat is at the far end, away from the honored guest. Or if there were multiple tables, the low part of the table at the other end of the room, depending on the size of the party. Now, we don't tend to set up our dinner parties this way. Uh, We don't tend to use U-shaped tables, although I suppose we could. But how many of you have been to a wedding reception uh, recently? Like in the last, you know, 10 years, right? The head table has the bride and the groom and the wedding party, right? They're the important ones. They're all dressed the nicest. And then, and then parents and siblings of the bride and groom are at tables two and three, right? Aunts and uncles and cousins, tables three through seven. College friends, that roommate you went that one year abroad, um, Tables 8 through 10. 
right, than other guests and friends who maybe aren't that close but are sort of close. Table 13, right? For the record, I don't mind sitting at table 13 or 14. This is not a dig at my placement at recent weddings. It's not what I'm saying. I like sitting at that table. It's close to the coffee, so I'm cool with that. Usually my kids are with us too, and there's more space for them to just be them. I like sitting there. But that's the picture here, right? Those of higher honor, stature, importance, closer to the center. Those of lower importance or lower honor or just regular average folks further away. And Jesus says, when you get invited to a party like this, to a wedding feast, don't assume you're the most important guest in the room. Why? Well, what happens if you show up at the reception and sit yourself down next to the groom at the, at the head table, but you're not the best man? Or right next to the bride, but you're not the maid or matron of honor? Right? Someone's going to come and say, uh, excuse me, this isn't for you. Right? You're going to be publicly removed from your chair. And if all the other seats have been taken at that point in the party, everyone else is shuffled in, taking their appropriate spots, what's left? Well, what's left is the one chair sitting next to the coffee table. They just just feel bad for you and they just pull one up here. You can sit in the kitchen. Right? Your only option after all the other seats have been filled, if you take the wrong chair, is the lowest chair available. However, Jesus says, if you come in and you take the low place, you pull up a chair at table 13, and the host, who's a close friend of yours, sees you far off and says, friend, friend, no, no, we already, you got table tent. You're up here, table three. Come, come up closer. Come, come sit here. We have a spot for you already. Come sit closer. You're giving the opportunity for the host to honor you by uh, inviting you up rather than shame you by telling you that you have to move. That someone here is more important for this gathering than you are. No, you take the, the low spot. Now, Jesus here isn't only talking about party etiquette, right? This is not a TED talk on how to work a room to network. This is not a manipulation tool. Well, if I take the low spot, he's going to be forced to honor me and bring me up. This is not what this is. Now, I do think he, Jesus is talking about how to live in a society, right? This has practical implications. Humility versus pride, thinking rightly of ourselves in relationship to others. We'll get to some of that. But, but this is primarily the way in which the kingdom of God is to be viewed. This is the, the lens through which Jesus is trying to teach them about the kingdom. In fact, there's a theme of humility that runs all through the scripture, which is a kingdom value, humility. Proverbs 3, verse 34, Toward the scorners God is scornful, but to the humble God gives favor. Proverbs 29, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Ezekiel 21, the prophet Ezekiel says, exalt that which is low and bring low that which is exalted. See this this backwards thinking? Well, it's backwards to us. It's right way for the kingdom. In both James 4 and 1 Peter 5, the New Testament writers reference Proverbs chapter 3 when they write this, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that Christians should be careful to not think of themselves more highly than they ought. 
That's what Paul says it. And in Philippians chapter 2, when he's talking about the humility of Jesus himself, who took on a human nature, who humbled himself, Paul reminds us, do nothing, he says. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. This is not just kind words from a nice Jesus. This is a kingdom theme throughout all of Scripture. In this parable, in Luke 14, Jesus is kind of peeling back the motivations of these partygoers. He's exposing their selfish ambition, their pride. If only they could position themselves properly, then they would be noticed. Then they would receive approval and honor of people whose opinion of them is very important. And we get this, right? This is not a foreign concept for us, if we're honest. Now, you might not be maneuvering for positions at dinner parties. Maybe you are. But, the, but think about it this way. There's a draw to being noticed, isn't there? To being seen, to being approved of, having an honorable or, or a notable position among people who are important to you. We can feel that, can't we? We want to be invited to the event. We want to be asked to be a contributor to the newsletter or the article. We want them to write that short bio about us in the local magazine. We want our Instagram post to be seen and liked and reposted. Especially when we at someone that we think is kind of cool and we're like, maybe they'll put it in their story. Right? We have a hunger for glory and honor. And in the world, we obtain honor by taking it. We just take it. But Jesus says in the kingdom of God, that's backwards. You don't take honor in the kingdom. You are given honor. And the host is willing to honor you. So let's see ourselves rightly. English author C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. He's not saying you're terrible and awful and so you should go sit in the corner. Just saying see yourself rightly in relationship to everyone else and let God do the honoring. It's not about me. So the question I ask as I read this parable this week and I think about all of your lovely faces, I think about this. Where is the hidden pride that is lurking around in my own heart? Where is the hidden pride that is lurking in our lives? In the way we see ourselves in the way we want to be seen by others. Not in a self-depreciating way, but just to humbly acknowledge that we are people made from the same stuff as all other people. That, that we've been welcomed and shown great mercy by a good and a gracious host in Jesus who has invited us into His circle. So it's not about us. And Jesus says that same thing here. If you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. But it's in humbling yourself and walking in that humility that brings true honor. So that's the first thing from these two parables. That humility is actually the thing that leads to honor. Which seems backward to us. Luke 14 continues, verse 12. Jesus turns to a man who invited him and speaks to him directly. So he goes right at his host here. Verse 12. When you give a dinner or a banquet, like the one you've invited me to this evening... 
Jesus is saying. Do not just invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, he says, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, we're not yet to the second parable yet, but we do have our second big idea or application from this text. That hospitality leads to blessing. Now, when we think of the word hospitality, we might think of all the components of hosting, right? Being a good host, throwing a good party. But when we read the word hospitality in the scriptures, there's a slightly different biblical definition than just putting out a good cheese tray, right? Biblical hospitality is less about the party and more about the guest. Here's what I mean. The, the connotations and the meaning around that word hospitality all throughout the Bible are focused on the who is actually being welcomed in. Those in need often. Maybe they're poor. Maybe they're strangers. There might even be friends amongst you who God just desires to bless through you. But it has layers of generosity and sacrificial welcoming. Less about the party, more about the guest. So Jesus says in verse 13, if you invite a friend over, what will they likely say as they leave? You've all had this. You've either been the guest or you've invited people over. One of two things usually happens at the end of that hangout time. One, let's do this again soon, which sometimes is true and sometimes is a great Midwestern lie. And two, (laughs) next time we do this, we'll have you over to our house, right? Now, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I would love to see that kind of like genuine care and love and willingness to build relationships. That should ooze out of us. It just should. None of that is bad. Kindness, generosity, being welcoming, enjoying time with family and friends over God's good gifts of food and drink and laughter. These are all excellent things, period. I'm not denouncing any of that. We can and should be the absolute best people at celebrating as Christians because we understand that everything we have is from God. And all that we have can and should be turned back to God in praise. God, thank you for these wonderful gifts of food and drink and friends and laughter. So we can enjoy a good steak and worship God while we do it. Amen? I mean, unless you're a vegan, then you probably don't enjoy a good steak. We'll talk later. (laughs) Right? We can belly laugh or take that deep breath after a meal. (sighs) Right? And praise God while we do it. Worship God while we do it. But Jesus is, is not specifically talking about that here. He's pressing on their motivations. There's another heart check. Your motives for where you sit might be exposing your pride. That's what we looked at first. Your motives, Jesus is pressing on, for welcoming people into your world or trying to insert yourself into their world are also worth examining. That's what he's pressing on. Are, are you inviting people in? Are you building relationships with them because of what benefit they give you Or are you building relationships with others because God has blessed you and you have an opportunity to turn that blessing around and give it to someone else? The difference in motive might be really small and sometimes hard for us to discern ourselves. But Jesus is being pretty clear here with his host. Check your heart. What is motivating your relationships, your generosity, your hospitality? 
And as Jesus is saying, this isn't to earn points with God. You're not working on some kind of spiritual ranking system. But that when you seek to bless people with the goal of being repaid, you're you're getting back your blessing, if you will, right then. Instead, he goes, there's a spiritual blessing that is eventually realized when Jesus comes again to make all things new. Now, there's a mystery here as to how this shakes out, but this isn't the only time Jesus has used this language. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus warns his listeners, when you give money or when you're being generous, don't sound a trumpet to let everyone know what you're doing. Like, and we don't do that, but maybe we do. Like, look how generous I'm being. I'm pretty sure most of you probably don't say that out loud in your best, like, Will Ferrell voice. Can you just picture Will Ferrell saying that at the top of his... Maybe it's just me. I said that to my wife. I'm like, when I wrote this out, I'm like, it sounds to me like Will Ferrell saying, look how generous I am in his Buddy the Elf costume, probably. Right? We don't do that out loud, but that's what he's pressing on. Don't make it known to everyone. What good is that? Don't seek the praise of men in your generosity because that's the reward you'll get. You'll get it right there. Well, isn't that nice of that guy to do that? People will think well of you. And that's it. In fact, Matthew 6, verse 3, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, which is a figure of speech, by the way, because your brain knows what every part of you is doing unless there's a problem with your neurological system. So what the parable or what the illustration is saying is whose benefit, who's getting the, the benefit, who sees what you're giving? So to not let your right hand know what your left hand is doing is in a sense to say, God sees, and that's enough. God sees, he knows, and that's good. So God gets the praise. And here's the beauty of this. Because God is not a tyrant, because God is gracious and kind, he is pleased to bless and reward his children who honor him in this way. That's the simplest way I can explain this part of this parable. God is pleased to bless and honor his children who worship him in this way. So, as another heart check for me and for you, am I generous? Am I willing to be used of God to show hospitality? Here's the kicker. Am I willing to be, to let myself be inconvenienced for someone who might be hard to love? Someone who might be in need? Someone who might have no ability to repay me? Not so that others think highly of me, but so that I might worship God through caring for and serving someone else. And that's the kicker for my own heart in this. Is the praise and blessing of God enough for me or do I need the praise of others? That's the second takeaway. Hospitality, the kind that is sacrificial and welcoming and doesn't seek repayment. On the back side of that comes blessing from God. So if we miss humility and we miss, miss hospitality, we'll end up like some of those in this second parable outside of the party in the end. They will, we will miss the feast which is our third kind of big idea here. One of the guests reclining at table with Jesus heard what he said, and in verse 15 says this, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, on its face, I think I agree with this guy. 
I think everyone who sits at the table at the wedding feast of the Lamb of God, at the consummation of all time, will indeed be tasting the full and awesome blessing of God. I think he's right. What a meal that will be, right? The question is, why is this guy chiming in at this point? Is he trying to add something true to the conversation? Was he trying to change the subject by putting a nice ending on all the difficult things that Jesus just said to the guests and the host? Like, wow, that got uncomfortable. Maybe I'll say something nice right now and we'll just change the subject. We actually don't know. We have no idea. And Jesus doesn't correct him, but he also doesn't endorse what he says either. Instead, he tells this other parable. We read it earlier, but let me just give you a recap. Recap of parable number two. Man throwing a party has already invited the guests, as was custom. The invitation would go out before the party to say, there's going to be a party. I will let you know when it's finally ready. So they already had advanced notice. And so when it's time for the party to begin, the host sends out his servants to go and tell the people, okay, the food's ready. The party is ready to begin. You can come now. But even though they were already invited... They had advance notice. They knew the when. When the time comes, they all have excuses. Three different excuses are offered in this parable, and we'll look at those here in a minute. So the servant returns home and tells the master what has happened. All the guests you've invited, he says, are not coming. They've all said they have other things to do. So the host, Jesus says, gets angry. And he tells his servant to go and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Which, by the way, corresponds exactly to the words that Jesus encouraged the host with earlier in our passage. These are people who cannot repay the host. The host is essentially saying, I'm not willing to waste one crumb of food or one drop of wine from this party, so I want you to bring in everyone who's outside. And once that was done, the servant told his master, I love this, there's still room. We've brought in everyone and there's still room. So the master says, okay, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come that my house might be filled. The highways and the hedges, the places outside of the edge of the county, to to the people who are hunkering down under a tree or under a bridge and compel them, convince them that they want to come to my house for a meal. Verse 24, For I tell you, none of those men who were invited, the first crew of people, shall taste my banquet. For those who had an invitation but who had better things to do, they would fail to feast. In fact, the master uninvites them. Jesus is offering this parable again as a picture of how the kingdom of God operates. So in a way, Jesus is saying yes. He agrees with the man who said, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus is also saying, you might not be at the table even though you think you'll be. So I think this, the, the meaning of this parable is somewhat obvious. God the Father is the master who is throwing a great feast who has promised an invitation to his people. Jesus is the servant who's come to tell the guests, come, come, everything's ready, let's go. As John chapter 1 verse 11 says, Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. But to those who did receive him, 
those who believe in his name, he now gives the right to become children of God. This is a picture of God's people, Israel, rejecting Jesus and welcoming in of Gentiles who aren't children of Abraham by birth, but who are children of Abraham by faith, heirs to all of God's promises by faith. The poor and the lowly and the outcasts who were at one point outside surviving under bridges and living under bushes are now welcomed in. And Jesus seeks us out and compels us to come and be a part of the banquet. Jesus makes the homeless masses into honored guests at the table in the kingdom. That's the picture we have here. But there are so many who were uninterested. They were too busy, too caught up in other things. They had excuses. Verse 18, and they began to make excuses. I bought a field and I must go see it. I have five yoke of oxen. That's ten oxen in total. And I go to examine them. I've married and therefore I cannot come. These are the excuses that are given. Now, none of these things are bad in their own right. It's wise to inspect the property that you bought, right? It's wise to check on the investment of the livestock you purchased. But, but you don't have to do that right now. Like if, you've, if you've bought it sight unseen, that's probably not wise but nonetheless, they'll be there tomorrow. Or if you have already inspected them, that's why you bought them in the first place. Why do you have to go again today? The third excuse, under Old Testament law, would make it so that a newly married man would be free from the obligation to serve in the military for a year after getting married. I mean, that makes sense, right? The goal was establishing a family, so you're not going to get called off to war right away. But that doesn't mean you were free from all other obligations for a year, right? You still worshiped. You still interacted with your family and those in your community. And scholars are kind of split on, are these legitimate excuses or are these made up? Is this just like, I have to wash my hair so I can't come? Or are these legitimate excuses that they just happen to time out at this time? Craig Blumberg in his book, uh, Interpreting the Parables, says this, what all three share is extraordinary lameness. It's one of my favorite commentary reads this week. What all three of these excuses share is extraordinary lameness. And that's the danger, isn't it? We can chuckle because, yeah, those are kind of dumb. But it's, it's not the big, awful sins that keep people out of the banquet. Did you catch that? It was simple, seemingly good things. Distractions are the things that kept them out. It wasn't like, I got to go murder someone. Sorry, I can't come to your party. No, I got to do something good. But that still keeps me outside. J.C. Ryle offers this caution, and I found it uh, compelling. He says, infidelity and immorality, no doubt, slay their thousands. But decent plausible, smooth-spoken excuses slay their tens of thousands. Ouch. No excuse can justify a man in refusing God's invitation and not coming to Christ. Obvious, heinous, gross sin is destructive and terrible, and we don't minimize it. And small Smooth-spoken excuses undermine 
how many more? I mean, what's the distraction off into my own heart? It's not some big, giant, awful thing. It's something simple, and I could argue, well, that's a, a good thing. Right, God? And while this parable is aimed at the Pharisees who are sitting in this room at this party, we can take it to heart as well. I mean, there are people who ought to be at this party. The religious, those who have been blessed with material wealth and success, they're the ones who find themselves excluded. Where are they being content with the blessings that they already have? Like the one who is praised for his generosity. We receive our reward here. And if indeed this parable is about a great feast to come, if it's referencing that great glorious banquet to come, then it's entirely possible to be so full here that we're not actually hungry when the time comes and we don't go in. That as we read uh, read earlier in Luke, that at some point the host shuts the door. As I said at the beginning, our big idea this morning, and this is what the kingdom of like, is marked by humility and hospitality. And Jesus not only models for us humility by becoming a servant, but he also models hospitality because he's the one who personally welcomes us in. And if this is what the kingdom of God is like, then Jesus is saying to all of his listeners at this meal and to us as we listen in on this dinner conversation that we, who are followers of his, are called to humility and hospitality as well. I mean, think about it. The the going to the faraway places to compel people to come in. How surprising would it be for for a Gentile man sleeping among the bushes to be told by a servant in a really nice tux, hey, the rich guy who lives in the next town over is inviting you over for a meal. Yeah, right. Right? So this idea of compel people, it's not violent. We're not arm twisting. But essentially, Jesus is saying, go and convince them that they are welcome to come. And how hard it is for us to overcome both our pride and our doubts. And here's the beauty, and then I promise we'll close. The door to the party is still open. If we're following this parable through to its logical conclusion, the door is not yet shut. And Jesus is right now gathering people for the party. So I think there's something here in this text for our heads and our hearts, as well as our hands. How we apply this to ourselves internally, how we think about this, and what we do with it for our own hearts. Let's re-ask the question, what are the things that keep us from coming to the party, from humbling ourselves Where's the pride? Where's the fear? Where's the contentment with the things of this world and the praise of others? Now, for all of us who who follow Jesus, if you've already been invited, then we're being called to humility and hospitality. Are we able to walk in that because our love of the world and our love of comfort and our love of the praise of man is being squeezed out of us by the love and blessing of God? For those who don't yet follow Jesus, can I just invite you? The door is still open. Jesus is saying, I've come to welcome in all those who are in need. You're welcome too. Would you come? Would you come? That's the the heart 
for us to process. For our hands, it's a simple question. I've been asking this all week. We've been talking about it as a family. How has God blessed us so that we might bless others? So it doesn't end on us. What does hospitality look like for you where God has placed you? In the house or the apartment where you live with the budget that you have every month. How has God blessed you and how might God want to show himself glorious through that blessing of you as you give it away to others? Doesn't have to be a lot. Doesn't have to have some preconceived notion of what throwing a party or being hospitable is. It's just asking the question, God, everything I have is from you. How do you want me to use it for your glory and to bless others? See, there are lots of things that keep us from fully participating in God's kingdom. But Jesus welcomes us in and calls us to follow his lead as we welcome in others. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess that we are, it's easy to forget how much mercy and grace you've shown us. That in your kindness, you have made yourself low to relate to us that we might be brought in. Would you renew our eyes with a picture of just how great your grace and mercy is to us? That we'd see again the, the, the great distance you have gone to make us your own. I pray that in your kindness you would root out fear and pride that just lingers so long in our hearts. That you would fashion in us a humility, that we would be marked by that humility as, as your people, as a local church. Not to, that others might praise us, but that in all that we do and think and say would be in praise of you. Help us to trust that your view of us, your opinion of us, as we are hidden in Christ Jesus, is of far more value than any other opinion. Pray you'd cause our hearts to worship you even as we come to the communion table. That you'd strengthen and encourage your people as we look again on the, the perfection of your humility, Jesus, for us to make us your own. Encourage our hearts as we come to the communion table, we pray. Amen.